Hello and welcome to Canine Hooper's World, the podcast. A whole new world of fun. Everyone's invited. Yes. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 20 of Canine Hooper's World, the podcast. This one is going to be a doozy. We have from the Dogs Trust, Tom Candy. Now, I met Tom a few years ago when I was doing a canine adventure course down in Devon, our paths crossed. We've been in touch with each other ever since. Tom's helped me out a little bit with one of my own dogs um, from a behavior medication side. So we're gonna talk a little bit about that today and kind of rescue journeys. And we've got lots planned to talk about. So Tom, how are you? Yeah, good, yeah. Surviving lockdown like uh, everybody hopefully is. Well, so when this comes out, we might oh. be actually free. That's exciting. It's very exciting. So we may be back in the world a little bit by then. So that is cool. So, Tom, just introduce yourself to the world because this is your first podcast. I can't believe this. You speak at like international training seminars and stuff like that. But this is your first podcast. So tell the world who you are. Yeah. So, yeah, it's my first podcast. Um so like Carrie said, my name is Tom Candy. At the minute, I'm working for the Dogs Trust um, as a senior behaviour officer. So I basically just look after a couple of centres and help them out with any dogs that they've got and the staff that work at those individual sites. But so I have my biggest sort of interest is rescue and behaviour and rescue. Bit of my background before sort of going into rescue properly. I've worked in rescue for about 10 years probably actually slightly more now which is a bit worrying just before we started recording we were talking about uh, how quickly time flies won't we carry just disclose your age when you say i've been working for 10 years like yeah so i'm 28 um and i started in rescue volunteering I when i was 15 yeah so i started volunteering in rescue when i was 15 um, then I went off to university, I did my undergraduate degree, and then I did a master's in clinical animal behaviour at Lincoln um, with Daniel Mills and Helen Zolch, and then started working full-time in rescue um, when I finished that. So, I've, And then I've been in res- properly full-time in behaviour and rescue ever since. So I think full-time it's been about six years now, this year. And that's really cool. And you must have, like... So your path was kind of planned from quite early on. You weren't because I started off with horses and then I messed around with cats for a little while. And then there were always dogs, but dogs didn't become kind of the job until I was sort of, I think it was as I was getting towards my thirties, I suddenly went, actually horses are getting a bit big and strong now and I'm fed up with getting trodden on. I'm going to go and play with dogs instead because I think it's safer. Um, (laughs) <laughs> yeah so it wasn't it wasn't so originally I wanted to be a vet mm-hmm. um and that's kind of where the volunteering came from because for a lot of veterinary universities you have to do a certain number of weeks of work experience so I'd done a range of things I've worked at a stables worked in a vet practice done boarding kennels and then I got involved with um Hope Rescue in South Wales which is at the time was, was kind of a little local rescue mm-hmm. which actually was one of the best things I did because yeah getting involved at that sort of local rescue level meant that I was exposed to a lot more than I probably would have been if I had just gone to Dogs Trust or RSPCA or somewhere like that where you just end up working in the kennels which is really useful Mm -hmm. but it gave me working with Hope gave me a lot 
broader understanding of kind of how rescue works, fundraising, working with the public, all of that sort of stuff. So at that point, and, and the first, I always remember the first sort of meet and greet that I went to where we took some dogs out to try and raise some money and, and awareness. Um, I turned up and they were like, here's this little staffy. She's recovering from Dermodendic Mage. Uh, mange so she had fur like lost all her fur although it'd been treated and it was growing back yeah so she had little ball patches and this little lilac equa fleece and she was called faith and they were like your job today is just to like have faith and just talk to the public about faith and rescue and uh you know just raise awareness and bring money in Mm -hmm. so i spent that whole day like looking after this little dog and i was just like oh yeah whatever path I go down I think I'll end up in rescue so the the point at that time was still to be a vet um but just do some rescue stuff as well mm-hmm. I didn't get into veterinary university um so I went to Lincoln to do bio veterinary as kind of like a, a backup option and then through doing that we're obviously exposed to a range of different modules mm-hmm. and as we were coming to the end I was like actually yeah behavior is what I really want to do I'd always been interested in behavior um and you know just watching the, the tv shows that were on in the day and doing things me, like me that Ben just spoke about that about the fact that we watch these tv shows in day and then the more you learn the more you go oh no don't do that yeah so the bit <laughs> the big one for me was um so it was Victoria Stillwell was on when I was sort of in school and stuff so that was what I was watching and it started with my parents bringing back a it's me or the dog book from the car boot sale when they'd been away um so I'd read that and then obviously watching the show and stuff which is quite funny now because I, I've met Vicky a few times at conferences yeah. and stuff and I always say like you, you realistically it probably is what initially caught my interest in in training and behavior yeah. um and then yeah like I said I was at uni and decided that actually yeah I think I want to do behavior and, and specialize in rescue which is then what I've gone on to do so which is crazy really because like I mean fair play to you for at yeah I'm gonna sound like a right old woman now but when I was in like my early 20s I was just messing around with ponies and having laughs with my mates and stuff. So the fact that you kind of straight away went, no, this is where I want to be. This is the path. Like, I love that and fair play to you. So one thing I think is going to be interesting because obviously working in rescue, you must have access, like you must work with so many different dogs on a daily basis. Like it's not like even people that like have their own kind of, um, dog training or behavior um or a behavior consults that work with dogs you know you might see maybe six dogs a day privately whereas for you you've got a whole center full of dogs yeah so um it was definitely interesting starting out because like i said I've, i'd been in rescue i'd been involved in rescue i'd been involved in training classes at university and um helping and observing behavior consultations as well as you know getting the sort of theory background Mm -hmm. and then yeah suddenly my first kind of main job out of uni was um training and behavior advisor so I was responsible for the all the training behavior and welfare of 40 kennels which so yeah so anything up to 60 dogs um which was yeah quite good like and it was I, I was really lucky though, it? <laughs> it is a bit yeah yeah it is a bit and um 
you know, Ilfraken, where I started out, was just a really nice centre because 40 kennels sounds like a lot, but actually in terms of our sites, it is it is one of the smaller ones. Yeah. Um, so it was quite nice, but yeah, definitely stressful. And like you said, you just, it really changed how I train because you can start with all of these plans, but when you're going from dog to dog to dog to dog, and there might be like two minutes in between, you are constantly adapting to the dog that's in front of you. And I think it's just made me, yeah, really adaptable in my training style because you can go in with the best plan in the world. And when that doesn't work, you've just got to adapt and do it. And then the next dog, you might still be working on reactivity to other dogs. So you might do a reactivity to other dog session with one dog, put that dog back in the kennel, have a quick swig of water or whatever, take the next dog out. And you might be doing completely different training, even though you're working on the same problem. Mm-hmm. So it was yeah that's super a really good interesting point for people because it's it never is a one size fits all like i live in a multi-dog household and even just between my four dogs that you would say a bit the girls probably more so would have been sort of trained and raised fairly consistently because they're close to each other how i'm training dodge now is very different because i've got eight more years of experience in training and stuff. So I am adapting how I train. And also he's just a different beastie to the girls. The girls can be a bit sensitive, whereas he's just like a bull in a china shop half the time. So kind of it's it's interesting that you have to change that plan because as you say, dog reactivity is a very broad brush. Like, because it's sometimes fear occasionally it's aggression but i mean so here's a question of all the dogs you've worked with how many have been truly aggressive like they've actually just found having a row reinforcing it's well just put you on the i spot. don't even know if i can say that any do but i think this is where it gets messy isn't it so i think for me it's a lot of the time it's going to be fear or frustration mm-hmm. that are those main driving forces for those for pretty much any behavior really any behavior that causes a problem um but the difficulty becomes when we've got that kind of crossover and we might have a mixture of the two or we've got pain kicking in as well or we've actually just got a learned response because they existed at some point in the past mm-hmm. but the dogs have learned that it's actually just a much more effective way to do it. So we're working with a dog at the minute, a collie who is really sensitive to handling. And one of the biggest things that we're struggling with is he's had five years of learning that snapping towards people who try and touch him is a really effective method of moving people away. And (laughs) yeah. And the, the question becomes, is he still worried about being touched? Which he probably is because wouldn't just, disappear necessarily but we've also now got this learned side of things of he's just you know all of those neurons in his brain are just straight away making that new connection and building and building and now we've got this almost instant response of just go away move away snapping at people so it's it's a really difficult one to overcome but yeah i don't know i think i've met i don't know if I think any dog is just truly aggressive. I think I've met one that, and he 
he's owned by a trainer and the owner I think would concur that if given the opportunity he would have a row for the sake of having a row because actually it's fun but that's one dog in however many like that is literally like a grain of sand on a beach isn't it all the rest are going to be a combination of and you bringing pain in I think is something that gets massively overlooked by people that pain in dogs does cause behavior changes yeah 100 percent. and I think one of the biggest issues is we've almost normalized it and not necessarily normalized pain in dogs but you know just watch dogs walking whilst you're walking around your town or your you know wherever you walk and there's a couple of dogs and look at how many dogs don't move like they should move and it's really interesting and especially at the minute with the puppy boom and puppies are always I'm not a vet but I'm quite interested in this because like you said it's such a huge part of training and behavior and and definitely at rescue we noticed it quite a lot just because of the type of environment the dogs are in it can make it harder to spot because they're not getting onto sofas they're not walking up and down stairs necessarily but the amount of dogs who just look uncomfortable when they're moving and sometimes it is just a feeling but then obviously that's what the vets are there for but it's really interesting if you just watch dogs walk it's surprising how many don't walk like they should and then it's been particularly interesting the last couple of months because I've been going to um like Pilates slash physio because Mm -hmm. I was um I've always kind of felt like my own posture was off and uh, I do a lot of scuba diving and kayaking which quite often involves carrying heavy things on your back and I just thought actually I kind of want to get this sorted now before it becomes a problem yeah why are you still young babe why are you still still young young. yeah that's it (laughs) um and so I yeah I had this assessment and she was like oh um one of your legs is longer than the other just slightly and then that's meant that you know it's kicked your hip out and then because of that you carry your weight more and so I've got a really bad knee at the minute and she was like well that makes sense because it's your slightly shorter leg so it uh slightly longer leg so it's bearing more weight yeah and you just think actually we don't even really understand our own bodies like if you'd asked me like do you have any issues walking I'd just be like what a weird question I can walk fine but I just think we don't think about it we don't look at it our bodies and the dog's bodies are so good at adapting and correcting them correcting themselves to a certain extent that they can still function they can still work as we expect them to but not in the right way and I think especially certain breeds as well like your bull breeds your terriers historically they've done jobs that may involve them getting hurt at some point and being able to carry on like and even terrier blessing was so stoic when it turned out that actually he had really bad arthritis but his stride had shortened slightly like you wouldn't have looked at him and gone oh my god he's crippled whereas in another breed that severity of arthritis would have made them eight tenth flame he was like one tenth flame yeah and my um my favorite thing to always think about is collies because mm-hmm. people say like oh he can't be in pain because he's playing ball most collies would like 
continue to play ball if like half their leg was hanging off and they'd probably right, still do it quite happily sketch. it's just a flesh wound yeah <laughs> so you know the and, and you're right and and it's particularly important in rescue i think because that point about being stoic is really good they're in a stressful situation you know they they don't it's evolutionary not to show that you're in pain yeah. So it is something that we should be, you know, good at picking up and then referring back to vets, or yeah. well, always the vet to start with, but then working with like physio or um, activity or stuff like that yeah, to yeah, yeah. to see if that is a problem. Because, and I think one of the reasons it's important because if nothing's there, then you've just that that question mark in your mind is gone. Yeah. And that's how I like to. That's how I think we should all work. That's how I like to work is. When we're looking at a dog in front of us who's got a problem behavior or we're just doing training with them or whatever, mm-hmm. we should have these question marks about why this behavior is occurring. Yeah. And if we think a dog is worried, we'll straight away start to see things that tell us that dog's worried because okay. it's in our head. So what we need to be really good at is actually ruling out these things. And then like Sherlock says, whatever's left must be the truth. Yep. And you'll never get there, you know, it's unlikely that you're going to get to that one thing. But pain or medical problems, if you've got a good vet, can be quite an easy thing to say, well, it might be a part, but we're not worried about it at the minute. Yeah. Because you can either start the dog on painkillers and see how the dog responds, or the vet can have a good look and say, no, we don't really think pain is a problem mm-hmm. for this individual. And then that's one thing that you don't necessarily need to worry about for a little while. Yeah. You might but come back to it later, but it's... And like when we even, because when you say pain straight away, a lot of people think about older dogs, dogs that or like sports dogs that are maybe super active, stuff like that. But the other extreme is puppies. I mean, the teething problems I had and literal teething problems with Dodge. And I think, I mean, you'll have met more than me, but shepherds tend to find the whole teething thing quite difficult. Um, I've got a lot of friends that have shepherds that are like, oh God, yeah, shepherds teething are a nightmare. Um, And it's not because they're not, as you say, like a stoic breed, like they're they're pretty hardcore, but I think, you know, Dodge would still play tug and he would have teeth coming out of his head, but he'd still want to play tuggy. But I kind of think that, especially with your large breed puppies and stuff like that, when they're growing, there's so much going on. There were days where I'd go, oh, mate, you're uncomfortable today, aren't you? Let's give you a day off. Whereas like you see in puppy groups and stuff, people don't realise that a lot of the behaviour response they're getting from the puppy is either they're overtired or they're hurting or both. Yeah. And the thing is, it's, it's kind of what we want puppies to do isn't it we want to see our puppies going off and playing with other dogs and running around the field and being happy and playing tug with us playing ball with us interacting with us but you're right they're still growing and that's a lot of stuff for them to do both sort of mentally and physically Mm. so it is important to have those down days and just do quieter things and let them recover and it's the same for us so um at work now this week we've just started a step challenge so I've got a bit into it it was only started yesterday and (laughs) so yes last night finished work five o'clock two and a half later as I came back from our dog walk and we'd done like six miles well we're used to doing that at the weekend but it's not something that we would do 
after work mm -hmm. so today even now i'm a bit like oh my legs are a bit sore yeah. and it's not that you know so it's just thinking about things like that building that um resilience to exercise up gradually needs yeah. to be done with any dog and it's something that we do highlight when people are taking dogs home from uh, rescues or shelters because depending on how long that dog's been in there with the best will in the world that dog might have come out of his kennel three or four two three four times during the day for 10 20 minutes of exercise so if somebody then tries to take that dog home and takes it home on a friday and then on sunday they go and do a seven mile walk around a lake or something yeah. you know that dog's fitness might not be at that level because it's been sat in a kennel for a couple of weeks. And I'm sure people have found during lockdown, our fitness drops pretty quickly when we stop doing things. Mm -hmm. like, I'm surprised how, you know, every time the gym's reopen and I go back, how much I've fallen behind Yeah. where I was, you know, even a month ago at the original lockdown or six yeah, weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. And I think, like... It's, it's really good what you've said about like, you know, building the dogs up gradually and people kind of bring them home. Cause even with like, like there's, I know there's sort of this rule of five minutes per month old for puppies, which I don't think there's actually any science behind it. It's just one of those things that kind of, it's a rule of thumb that people stick to. And some people agree with it. Some people are like really anti it. But again, I think it's about, being careful with puppies and being safe, but also like with the older dogs, like Munchkin in her heyday, my staffy mix, she would happily have gone for like a two hour hike with me. Like we would have done a good 10 miles through woodlands, like having a lovely time. If I tried to do that with her now, she'd be crook for weeks. Like She would not thank me for that. Yeah, and I think we, it's difficult, isn't it? Because we don't want our dogs to get old. No, but they do just they do get older quicker than us. And I think that's why sometimes we can forget because a year for us is quite a long period for them, really. Yeah. So I think, yeah, once you sort of that, that time passes and we don't necessarily notice any difference in our dogs mm -hmm. and it's, uh, you know, it's not really noticed up until the point where they start getting grumpier in the evenings or they're less able to get on the sofa or jump in the car there's quite obvious signs that something's not quite right there yeah. whereas it might be that actually they've started to feel uncomfortable for quite a period before that yeah and we're just yeah, you know not picking up on it and it's not to say that you know we're all bad owners we all miss it we yeah, see course. these dogs every day it's hard to notice changes yeah. um but that you know it's just a sad fact of life isn't it yeah and like as you say us. like with with having things like you know using like physio and stuff like that obviously like if you're unsure the first protocol should be your vet um and a lot of like if you do have um behavioral issues a lot of people kind of don't understand why when they're filling in a behavioral consult form the behaviorist says has the dog had a vet check recently and people go, oh, yeah, they've, they've had their vaccinations. It's not the same thing. Um, so can you just explain a little bit of why? Because obviously you're in the situation where you have vets that work at Dogs Trust. So you can go, right, I need the vet to look at X, Y, Z for me. 
but can you just kind of put it in a bit of layman's terms for us mere mortals? <laughs> yeah, so um, it's a really good point that you brought up, actually. Like, lots of people will just say, like, oh, they, they've had their vaccination, or, yeah, the vet looked at them. But actually, a lot of the time, the vets might ring me up and say, well, what do you actually want me to look for? when you say can you just give this dog a check over so even the vets don't really have a good understanding of what to look for when they're doing initial checks and a lot of the time we don't you know we just won't know either until you see the dog um it is difficult to kind of have an idea of what you're thinking it's that's why it can be quite useful to get veterinary histories or even just information from the owner to see if anything does jump out as really obvious um because even if it's injuries that aren't affecting the dog anymore if that happens at the time the dog started to be reactive then it just gives you more information to explore um i mean if there was so say the dog um suddenly was, had been all right with other dogs but then it had come reactive, but then you find out that the dog had had a poor injury at the same time the reactivity started. You can go, oh, well, maybe there was another dog near the dog when it hurt its paw, and that gave it the association of, oh, other dogs might hurt me. Yeah, definitely. And particularly with pain or really negative experiences, that's what most species are um evolutionary predisposed to so lots of positive things can happen to us and you know they're great when they happen but we might not necessarily remember them but if something happens and it's super negative it's really important for us from a survival point of view to remember that thing so exactly what you just said it only the, a dog could have had two years of happily playing with other dogs, all positive things, never had a bad experience. But if one experience is really painful, mm -hmm. that can undo all of that previous learning to just create that super strong responsive other dogs equals pain. Mm -hmm. Which, And that's not always the case, but it is something that we should sort of pay attention to. And um, the thing is, I think... Vet referral to start with is really important because it's really important to get the vet on board. Just double check. And particularly, like you said, if if there is a new behavior, if something's changed, mm -hmm. we've got to think, why is that behavior changed? If yeah. there's nothing obvious in the environment, and like I said earlier, one of the easiest things to rule out is medical because you can get them seen by the vet before they come to you. Mm -hmm. But I think what we also forget, and sometimes vets struggle with is they only see dogs for what 10 minutes when yeah. you take your dog in for a consult it's hard for that and that dog's going to be stressed and worked up we're seeing dogs in their homes or in an environment that might still be a little bit stressful if they've not been there before but will most likely be less stressful than a veterinary practice yeah and we're there for what an hour two hours yeah maybe more we're seeing them walking we're seeing them get up on sofas and things if they are doing mm -hmm. and i think what's what's been a, a big game changer throughout time but hopefully even more so now is I think people are a lot more used to taking videos sending them to people because if, you know for everything at the minute um that's what we're doing so I don't know if you can see but I've got this like red mark under my eye 
which a couple of weeks ago really flared up mm. and had been there for about two weeks mm-hmm. and I had to send a photo to the doctor yeah I had a thing recently I had to send a photo to the doctor so they could yeah. like do a consult over the phone looking at a photo like what exactly and most people now will have some way of recording yeah. a video yeah most people have phone you know good phones or smartphones and but even and some of the smartphones have the slow-mo option as well which mm-hmm. if it's a movement issue so minx a few years ago she does this weird thing with her back leg where one of her back legs slightly flicks out when she's at full speed if she's running normally it doesn't happen when she's full tilt round a hooper's course we were like what is she doing with her leg so i set it up on a flat surface with a tripod with a slow-mo camera so i could show the vet because the only time this movement happened was in such a certain context and the vet went oh okay well let's check her um because obviously the thing with chihuahuas luxating patella is really common it wasn't that at all and the vet was like oh my god her muscles are really strong i actually think that's just her movement it doesn't seem to be causing her pain but we will keep an eye on it yeah. If I didn't have that slow-mo, I would have gone in going, well, she does this flicky out thing and it's a bit weird. And the vet would have probably looked at me like I was nuts and we wouldn't have worked out what was going on. Yeah, exactly. And and it is super important and it's super easy to do most of the time. So if you have clients or your own dog and you just aren't sure, doing a lot of videoing can be super helpful. And also just keeping a diary. So looking at things like how easy did they get on the sofa, how easy they get in and out of the car. Are they still coming upstairs if they're allowed upstairs? Mm-hmm. And just little things like that so that you can look over a week or two weeks, are you noticing any differences? And it's the same for behaviour, isn't it? Like you said about the um, vet just kind of looking at you blankly. <laughs> well, that happened, that's happened to me. I'm sure yeah. it's happened to other people as well, where somebody's come in... Uh, you know at work or rung me up and they're saying the dog's doing this and I'm like right <laughs> what is that and oh, even yeah. if even if they give you the best description in the world you're not getting all of that information yeah. you're not getting what's happening in the environment whereas actually if they just film it for you you can be like oh okay and kind of see where this is going it's going to influence the questions you ask mm-hmm. which is then going to help you get better information about that behavior yeah. to feed into your plan so video is super helpful and, and we were talking um before recording weren't we about how things have changed with lockdown yeah and my role previously was super hands-on i was traveling to different centers once a week working with dogs working with staff mm-hmm. well then lockdown happened so that couldn't happen anymore because they don't want me going between different places yeah. spreading stuff no spreading no um, spreading, no spreading. So we've gone to videos and we've always used videos because they're super Mm -hmm. useful to track progress and things. But I think it can be a good workaround and encouraging clients to get videos of any behavior, but making sure they're aware that we don't want to be putting dogs specifically into situations that trigger that behavior um, just to get the video. But if they've got it anyway, it's super helpful. Yeah. But the other thing from it, like coming from a kind of more sport world that I'm coming from now, like if I've either done a bit of training myself, if I don't have my trainer with me, I can then send a video and go, what do you think of this? But 
Also, I quite often send, um, especially if I'm doing conditioning and fitness exercises, I'll, I'll send that to Dodge's physio so she can go, yeah, that was right. Or I'll just be careful that you're keeping his back straighter or stuff like that. Because obviously I appreciate some of the crazy things I do with him are quite extreme because it's conditioning for sports dog stuff. Whereas kind of pet dog people don't need their dog to balance on a yoga ball and a peanut. But if you are going to do crazy stuff like that, it is important to have a professional. And I think in ways, if something good has come out of all this crazy pandemic, the use of video, I think is something that we all overlooked as trainers a little bit, whereas now we see it as a really useful tool. Yeah, and but yeah, I agree completely. And when I started at Dogs Trust, we had one GoPro that was shared between the training team and the, the you know the media assistant the people who get the photos up on the website and do cute videos to get the dogs into homes yeah, yeah, yeah. with one gopro and i don't actually think that um the gopro had been used for training much before i started and then i was like oh gopro cool um <laughs> just started filming everything <laughs> yeah and then you know we got two and three and like we just mentioned nowadays you don't even need a gopro really because everybody's phones are perfectly capable of recording it and you just stand it against something or get somebody else to hold it for you and you can easily film those behaviors and yeah it is important because how many people come to consultations as well and you're like oh you, my dog's reactive to other dogs and you're like okay let's go for a bit of a walk and then you see a dog ages in the in the distance mm. and you can, you know, you notice all of that body language that gives you information about that dog. And you're like, okay, cool. Let's go a different way. And the owner's like, well, you haven't seen the behavior. <laughs> and you're like, I don't Let's move closer. And I'm like, I don't need, yeah, exactly. I don't need to see the behavior. But video does mean we can do it in a hopefully less stressful way. As long as owners know, don't put the dog into that situation. But if he happens to get video whilst it happened yeah you know, whilst it was happening mm. accidentally it's a different situation so it is, i'm it is gonna useful. dive in quickly with the podcast science i'm starting to do a thing called that's not a thing so this is a really good example when people watch tv programs they see the undesirable behavior because it makes for good tv unfortunately most trainers and behaviorists don't want the dog rehearsing that behavior we don't want it we don't need to see it so it's not a thing when the trainer says oh i need to see the dog kick off at another dog no they don't the dog does not need to practice that you know if i can limit dodge is a prime example because he's got this whole lead shouting thing at the moment i think it is a combination of frustration and fear um, just to keep me on my toes and mess my head. It's a, it's a German shepherd. It's a shepherd. You're like, it's a shepherd. What's <laughs> going to happen? Yeah. Uh, wasn't fully prepared for this, Tom, okay? But there are trainers out there that would go, oh, I need to see him. It's not a thing. And that leads us really nicely to um, regulations in training. Yeah. 
because you are a, a proper, what I call a proper behaviorist. And when I say a proper behaviorist, I mean, you went to university, you have studied to a higher learning level of understanding of behavior. Now, there are other routes to becoming a behaviorist, but behaviorist isn't like a registered trademark. Like anybody can use that term, which is terrifying and also really rubbish for the public. Um, I have never used term behaviorist. I am a trainer. I am a dog trainer. I don't even like doing what I... When I say behavior, I mean like resource guarding, separation anxiety, severe aggression. I would just pass that on straight away. That's not my bag. I like to stay in the fluffy bubble of teaching, loosely walking and recall. It is all behaviors, but there's a gray area. It's not black and white. But when you've got people that come in that literally have, the only qualification is I've had dogs all my life. They're not a behaviorist. Would you like to expand? <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's a big topic, isn't it? Yeah. And I think what the one thing that probably most people will hopefully agree on is it's something that needs sorting out. Yeah. Past that point, I don't think many people agree on anything. <laughs> so I'm, um, I'm, the chair of the dog division for IAABC. So that's one of my main organizations um, and I'm more actively involved with them. And then I'm also a member of APBC and then through that, I'm on the clinical animal behavior register for the Animal Behavior and Training Council. Lots mm -hmm. of acronyms. Yeah, as always. And um, that's been super interesting actually because ABTC at the minute are kind of reviewing all of their roles and we've done that now and now we're looking at the re-looking at the assessments so for people who don't know abtc is the sort of overarching body it's like the parent group of a, a lot of different organizations and the aim is that more organizations are able to join and then we've got this industry standard mm -hmm. like um like the rcvs for vets yeah but there are different routes in because you've got different organizations who offer their members different things, mm -hmm. but you're all under this one umbrella, which means, you know, there's an ultimate responsibility. Yeah. Um, and we've been talking about it because at the minute, a lot of the organizations, you know, you have to prove a level of knowledge, which 100% you should, mm -hmm. but a, a, for a long time, it has been based around having that degree or, um, degree equivalent so you know something like uh, the compass courses which are level six or or whatever yeah and like the imdt have got their behavior stuff that does level five and six now as well so yeah exactly so i think that's super important but the one thing with training and behavior at the minute is that we are almost like a um I'm going to say crossover because I can't think of another word, but I don't mean crossover trainers necessarily. So I don't necessarily mean people who use different methods and now use more positive methods. Mm -hmm. I just mean we're still quite a new industry, realistically, in terms of people professionally working with dogs as their main form of income. Yeah. We're a pretty new industry. And that means that there's a lot of people who probably really would have liked to have done similar to me and been involved in the industry from 
the word go but they didn't have that opportunity because there wasn't university courses there wasn't things like imdt and iscp iscp yeah mm-hmm. and um you know these other course providers they just didn't exist mm-hmm. or if they did it was really specialist so like southampton uni did the first kind of postgraduate behavior course um however many years ago that was so we've got a lot of people at the minute who have come from completely different backgrounds like banking or you know whatever they did before and now they're amazing trainers amazing behavior people they've got a great amount of experience and knowledge Mm -hmm. so what we're kind of doing at abtc at the minute is well how do we look at this vast array of experience and knowledge that we've got and make sure that the people who didn't go and do the Lincoln Masters have the same knowledge as the people who did Lincoln or went to Edinburgh or Mm -hmm. did the degree at Bristol or you know wherever you came from it's and that's how I would like to see things happening really is we there should be a base level of knowledge for different roles Mm -hmm. but I don't I don't for me personally I don't think how you got that knowledge is important but showing that you have the knowledge and the practical skills to back that up is super important and I'm just gonna jump in because the practical skills is really interesting because I know that like people that have maybe gone from school to university and done their behavior degree they may have had one or two pet dogs that's not going to give you the same amount of um, practical experience as, say, someone that is working at even a boarding kennels and therefore is meeting loads of different dogs and seeing loads of different dogs. And that's where it becomes really difficult, isn't it? Because practical knowledge and theoretical knowledge, there needs to be a balance between the two. Yeah, there definitely does. And it's... Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's really hard. I think you should have a good array of practical knowledge. Mm -hmm. So a varied amount of it. But I always say, like, actually, rescue training and behaviour is really different because Mm -hmm. it's really hard to say, just avoid seeing other dogs for a week or whatever. (laughs) Because you're at a centre with hundreds of other dogs and um, Ilfracume... Dog's Trust is in a valley. Oh, Where'd okay. Go? Where'd you go if you're in a valley? You can't go anywhere, can you? You've got to walk one or the other. So you, you become really good at hiding behind cars, hiding behind fences, yeah. using distractions like food on the floor or stuff like that. But also, the thing that makes, the thing that I think makes people a really good rescue behaviorist mm-hmm. is just being able to deal with situations when stuff happens. Because all right, your dog started reacting to another dog. Mm-hmm. Just move, you know, just get the dog out of that situation. Go and hide behind that car. Try and calm the dog down at that point. Yeah. You've just got to be able to sort of work in that environment. Well, that's really different to working in class setup, and particularly with puppies where, you know, you're mainly talking to the owners. Mm-hmm. You're not really going to have that experience of yeah. managing that specific situation of a dog reacting well jumping again to private 
even tra- you know, training work or behavior work, mm-hmm. if a dog starts reacting and you're in front of a client, you need to be able to show that client how to manage that situation yeah. without them freaking out, as mm-hmm. well as showing them this is the training plan that we're going to put in place that's going to make it better. So I think it's really important to have that sort of range of experience when you're starting out. And rescue is a great place to go because, like you said, you meet tons of different dogs who are in a reasonably stressful situation, who've come from different backgrounds, have different training experience and different needs. So it's a brilliant way to kind of capture all of that for your own benefit. And you're helping out organisations that need it, particularly if you go to sort of the smaller local rescues who might not be lucky enough to have a behaviour team. You know, it's a great mutually beneficial um, relationship to form when you're starting out. And I think what's really interesting is how often do you hear people say, oh, I'm um, I'm not very confident at the minute or I'm just starting out, so I just teach puppy classes. Yes, and the thing is, that's actually puppies need the most amount of experience because so many things can go wrong exactly. early that map out the rest of that puppy's life. My first training job, I taught the puppy class. And it's, yeah, and it's, you know, it can work. And I'm not saying that like new trainers are just damaging all puppies coming through no, the system. No, that's not, what that's not at all what I'm saying. But, but puppies are in a way less resilient because they don't have any learning history and if you make a mistake with a puppy it's potentially quite difficult to then fix that mistake in the future you'd start with adult dog classes they already know a lot anyway most of the time you know um and they have that learning history which can sometimes make them harder to work with if it's a bad learning history but if you're teaching like obedience classes or things like that you know chances are you're going to have sort of -of run-of-the-mill pet dogs who the owners just want to do something extra or they're struggling because they're pulling on the lead or you know all of the stuff that you mentioned earlier they're just trying to make their lives easier they're not necessarily dealing with something that actually makes their life difficult in the form of sort of like a problem behavior so it's really interesting how we as ourselves kind of perceive the level of experience and what's required for different jobs and like you said, it is about having a mix of practical skills. Yeah. But actually, I don't think I'm a particularly good tra- Well, I know I'm not a particularly good trainer because it's not what I spend a lot of time doing. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm really good at muzzle training because we muzzle train a lot of dogs. Yeah, yeah. I, I really enjoy loosely walking because I think it's quite tricky to teach and it's really nice to go from having that dog who's a complete There's tank so many to walking nicely. To well. Yeah, but like... I'm I've started during lockdown I've tried to be better because um I do a lot of traveling so mm-hmm. normally I'm quite tired in the evenings so now I'm at home a lot more I'm trying to do more really specific clicker training with my dog and it's really bloody hard to like <laughs> do you know really precise behaviors like um pause the targets or you know all different things like that it's really you difficult said that to me and I'm like but that's easy exactly because that's what because, I do yeah exactly but Give you know, give me a dog who's lunging and barking at other dogs on lead, mm-hmm. and that's more my jazz, and I feel yeah, really yeah, comf- yeah. comfortable in that situation, and I get good results. You know, without sounding 
no, like but a that's balloon exactly, head. You know, like that's if I said to you, right, Tom, I want you to right, you're gonna teach your dog to um open a box, collect five articles, put them all in the box and then close the lid. That's what your behavior is gonna be. You're gonna go, I'm sorry, I'm doing what? Yeah, like, even and I could on your face now, I could write the plan. Me, Tom just glazed yeah. over slightly with how do I do this training? Yeah, yeah. and I, I could write the plan and I could do it, but so I bet you it probably would take me longer to do work. it than you. What happens if your timing's off? What happens if you click the dog for shutting the box instead of opening the box? Then what yeah, are you gonna exactly. do? And you know, I I enjoy breaking down behaviors and things like that, but I'm not. I don't that it's not it's not needed for me in my day-to-day yeah. work to do that sort of thing because yeah. I, I'm much more likely to like I said have a reactive dog where I'm marking specific behaviors or things that I like that the dog's offering me rather than those really sort of nitty-gritty training plans yeah. and um, one of my colleagues is a, f- a phenomenal marker-based trainer mm-hmm. and is brilliant at getting precise things but we have different skill sets and they complement yeah. each other yeah 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 and um i i wouldn't walk into an agility ring and think oh, i can teach all of these people to do agility <laughs> you know it's it's a Come different and play hoopers and skill set. have a dog work yeah. 30 meters away from you yeah exactly. you're like i'm sorry what so i i like uh, anybody who asks me i'll say i'm not a the fantastic trainer i can get by i understand it all i just don't have the practice of doing that much mechanics because it's not been a requirement you understand how like the dog's brain works and you can kind of geek out and something so i actually while you're here and i'm putting you on the spot a bit sorry not sorry but can we kind of put a couple of terms that people might hear into sort of layman's terms, whether they are trainers or owners that are listening, because some terms get used quite a lot. And there are things that I have to go and look up and go, I'm sorry, what's this? Oh, okay, now I understand. So things like um, the way I've heard it put recently is they're thinking with their hind brain or they're thinking with their front brain. Now, Right. How do we explain that in like the world? Um, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever heard that until you just said it, and then I've just suddenly had like flashbacks. But I guess it's based on that sort of. Oh, I don't know. I actually don't know what you mean. Um, I've just put you on the spot there. So I think yeah. it's with like when the dog's kind of using this sort of more primitive part of their brain where they're just sort of reacting as opposed to actually using the frontal cortex where they're maybe thinking and sort of being a bit more aware of the world rather than just going, oh, I'm a dog, I'm going to bark or I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. Yeah. And I guess that the easiest way to break that down in is that sort of difference between when you're doing management and when you're doing training. Mm -hmm. Because as we've just mentioned, if your dog's already started kicking off and you've got that sort of big um, arousal activation and everything's kicking off for that dog, Mm -hmm. they're not thinking particularly. They're not going to be particularly bothered about what food you've got in your hands necessarily. They've got a job and that's what they're focused on, whether it's making that other dog move away or whatever Mm-hmm. you know that behavior is, has been triggered by so the best thing to do is get them out of that situation because learning isn't going to occur mm-hmm. 
-hmm. And then once they, once that arousal has started to drop, and it might be that that isn't the same day. It might be that that has to be and the next day really or the day after. Point. It may need a day for the dog to... Yeah, and, and that's one of the ways we assess emotion versus learned behaviour. Mm -hmm. is emotion is as a physiological response so our bodies do it without us thinking about it it's you know it, emotion is in my opinion what drives behavior so we we would expect to see that physiological arousal and in dogs that comes out in the form of sort of um you know their heckles going up and their eyes widening and and the panting and things like that well if that disappears as soon as that other dog leaves sight or you know you increase the distance it's harder to say that that's an emotional response because our bodies are designed to go up and then they come back down more slowly because they don't they're not required to kind of get back to that baseline as quickly mm -hmm. we think of our sort of fight or flight yeah as, as a as a base of doing it your body prepares you to get out of that situation that causes you risk Mm -hmm. whether that's fight or flight doesn't really matter we're designed to have that stress response and you know our adrenaline kicks in and all of those other hormones so, are released you've you've just led me on to the next thing so we talk about kind of hormones and adrenaline and dopamine and serotonin but how can we kind of explain that to people that are as i say sort of getting into more the behavior side of stuff because I have trainers that, you know, as you say, on an agility field or a hoopers field, they're amazing, but they may not understand all the kind of, no disrespect, the geeky science side of how things are happening and why they're happening. So adrenaline is something that I think is quite relevant when it comes to sports dogs, because adrenaline is seen as negative, and I don't think it always is. Yeah, interesting point, isn't it, really? So adrenaline is just kind of our, like, I guess the easiest way to explain it is, is that it just kickstarts everything else off. It kind of gets us ready for a situation. Mm -hmm. And that is normally, well, event, you know, earlier on, evolutionarily, that would have been in the most part to kind of protect ourselves because that's what our ultimate aim is mm -hmm. in any situation um but that's then kind of crossed over into other areas so when we get aroused generally um excited or frustrated or anything like that you still kind of get this this kick up of adrenaline mm -hmm. and you're right in some situations that's super not helpful but in other situations like it can be really helpful because it kind of empowers us to to do better and that's where you sometimes get that confusion between that, um, I guess, motivation and frustration, particularly in the sports world. Yeah. Because I remember going to craft, I'm probably going to upset some people, but I remember going to craft and we sat and watched, we sat and watched flyball. And I'd never, I knew what flyball was. Mm -hmm. I'd never seen a flyball competition. <laughs> and I was, I was just gobsmacked yeah. because. I spend most of my day, oh, a lot of time in shelter trying to get dogs not to rag my sleeves or jump up at me or bite me or nip at me and not be frustrated in situations. And I get it's a very specific context, but these dogs were so ramped up. 
Yeah. And I don't think it's necessary for them to be that ramped up. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of non-sport trainers will agree with that fully. A lot of sports trainers will agree fully. But obviously the people that do flyball and love flyball will disagree wholeheartedly. Some may agree, but not want to agree. Um, and flyball is a really good example. And I'm not sport bashing. From my point of view, it's one of the sports that I feel puts the most amount of pressure on the dog physically and mentally because the repetition of over the jumps, box turn, back over the jumps, the dogs wear wraps and stuff to protect their joints and stuff, which straight away, if the dog's wearing some form of protection, that means we know they need that protection to that job, but also that adrenaline level. You know, when when you see like, I know some dogs are a bit barky at the start of agility, but you see dogs, let's go for heel work to music as an example. Those dogs are going to have a degree of adrenaline, especially when we're talking big ring events like mm. Crufts. But they know how to cope with it. And the handlers have trained the dogs to deal with that level of adrenaline to work. And it is an art between, as you say, frustration and motivation. There is a very careful balancing act. And that's where when I think there is a difference between sport dog trainers and pet dog world. There is a big difference when it comes to adrenaline levels, because like the other day, Dodge had been training. We'd had a really big training day. Um, he'd worked really hard. The day after we did a tiny mooch around the block and I was very mindful to be avoiding any potential trigger because I knew he was still going to be up from the day before. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think that's the key point, isn't it? That difference between sort of excitement, motivation, arousal, whatever word you want to use for mm-hmm. it, and frustration. Mm-hmm. Because I think we see a lot of frustration in those situations, and I don't think that's necessarily good for anybody. I don't have an issue with a dog being excited before it does a, you know, a run or whatever yeah. um, sport we're doing, yeah. because... It's great. You want it to be. You want the dog to be enjoying it as well, and you know it would be lovely to see all of the dogs just chilling out completely before an event. But I don't think it's a completely realistic and b completely necessary. But I don't think we need to be seeing these uber aroused, slash frustrated dogs yeah, yeah. who are being ramped up and up and up and up and up. And I, I can understand why people might think that's the case. And like I said, I don't particularly do much, in, well, I don't really do anything in the sports world mm-hmm. anymore. But I know dogs who have done championships at, in different sports who aren't that frustrated or aroused yeah, before yeah, they go yeah, into the ring, yeah. which, which to me says it can happen. And if we think about it again from sort of evolutionary point of view or just any point of view, like look at hunting patterns so dogs or cheetahs or whatever you look at they're not like yeah let's go and catch this squirrel i'm gonna get the squirrel i'm definitely gonna get the squirrel you know that's kind of what we've read into mad frat party like yeah exactly like ah, ah, like all the jocks in uh, american football parties (laughs) like you just said that we've kind of bred that instant but that's that's kind of a different topic you know we've got stalk chase 
grab bite, kill bite. Yeah, that's the pattern, mm-hmm. isn't it? I think I just got it wrong, but um, that's stalking in there as well. Yeah, so we've <laughs> added extra stuff with breeds, but yeah. we always start with that stalk. Most, most um, hunt species like anything, cheetahs, lions, you know, they're fast paced catchers, so they yeah. try and get as close as possible to the prey, mm-hmm. and then they'd sprint to close that gap. Yeah. So if they started off uber aroused and, you know, barking and kicking off, they'd never catch that prey. Yeah. yeah. So if we're expecting them to do, you know, short, sharp, and it's slightly longer for agility and hoopers and stuff, isn't it? But it's mm-hmm. still a reasonably short. Oh, some hoopers time run less the... than 10 seconds. Exactly. So it's if like, we're expecting them to do sprint, that. Really. I don't see why we need this uber level of frustration before they start. And then the other side of it for me is, if they are aroused, are they able to come down after? Yeah. And I think that crosses over to all areas, not just the sport world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever you're doing, if you're working with a reactive dog, it's about, A, changing changing that initial response anyway, Mm -hmm. but B, teaching the dog to cope with it. So, yes, okay, something, you know, you saw that of a dog, mm-hmm. you, you either reacted because we're not very far in the training or you did really well not to react, but I need you to come back down to being calm. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a super key skill and we should do, yeah, with, I had a, so my last dog was a Cavalier before mm-hmm. I got, um, well, it's our family dog, it was a Cavalier. I used to play tuggy games with her. Still had a, she still had a, um, I can't remember what we use now actually, but just like an enough cue. So we yeah. would do tuggy, 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 and then I don't want her to bite me anymore. And if I stop playing, yeah, yeah, I want her to go back to being able to do something else. And it's the same with Jess now. We can be going absolutely crazy in the evening playing ball games, but if I say I'm done, I want her oh to go God. and chill out. Yeah. And it's this, it's a, that relationship. If she stops, I'm not going to be like, come, come on. on. Come, come on, get the tuggy. Come on, what are you doing? If she, if we've had a nice game and she's gone, I'm kind of all right now, I'll be like, cool, I'm glad we had that interaction. I'll go and do something else. And that's what I want my dog to do. If I'm interacting with you and now I've finished, I want you to go and do your own thing. Yeah, yeah. You don't need to go and lay in your bed perfectly still. Just don't annoy me. Yeah, just go do dog stuff on yeah, your own. Just go and pick up your, tr- yeah. your chew and you can chew that for a bit to bring your arousal down. Or yeah. Jess is unbelievably lazy so she'll just go back to sleep wherever she, whatever she was doing she'll just go back to sleep um and i can even be like if she so she sleeps um on the bed with me so i'll wake up in the morning and i'll be like right should we go for a walk and she'll be all excited and then i'll get dressed go downstairs and she's back asleep on the sofa <laughs> so i think you know we oh you took it, too long getting ready down and board now i'm just back to sleep now <laughs> And even sometimes, like, I put a lead and harness on and if I'm faffing um, with the keys or uh, I've forgotten something in the kitchen, um, she's, like, just laying in the middle of the floor, like, what are you doing? Um, So I think, like, it's a natural thing for dogs to become aroused in different situations. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, that's your relationship with your dog in terms of the sport world, is that sort of getting excited together and ready for it, I don't have a problem with that. As long as it's not like a ridiculous level. But I think and... we've accidentally touched on, and it's something I see a lot in like the social media groups when people are giving like advice, like, oh, they need more exercise. 
like physical exercises no all you're going to do is make the dog fitter <laughs> yeah it's a huge point isn't it um people trying to keep up with malinois not going to keep up with them we just need to change their mindset because also like you've got a malinois what did you think was going to happen yeah, like yeah, yeah. we're not so, yeah. y'all know i love a mally I yeah they're lovely i don't want German. one but they're lovely dogs. Yeah. I enjoy other people's one. Malinois, but I don't want one. No. Because no. it's not me. Like I just said, my dog gets out of bed and goes <laughs> onto the sofa. That's, you that's what I want from my dog. And that's cool. And that's why there's so many different breeds. So the other thing I just want to, while we're, while we're geeking out a little bit, um, serotonin and dopamine, what, what do they do? What are they? So dopamine is are kind of, so if, if we think about Pang Serp, who did a lot of the kind of original um, emotion work, mm-hmm. he has a system which he calls his seeking system. It's sometimes also called our reward system. Mm-hmm. And that's driven by dopamine. Okay. So dopamine is the thing that kind of, is that hit we get at the end of doing something. So okay. I'm going to wash, this is a really bad example, but I'm going to wash the dishes. I finished washing the dishes. I've achieved that task. I get a bit okay. of dopamine. Yeah, yeah. Might not be the most because doing the dishes is pretty boring. But if you set out to, if you've just completed a really difficult level on a video game or you've just um, trained that behavior you've been working on for ages, mm-hmm. that reward center in our brain is what's going to be triggered. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens when we hear that click. Yeah. So that's what the click is aiming to do is trigger that reward center and release that dopamine. Mm-hmm. Serotonin is then more of our sort of feel good hormone. Um, it's like our happy, it's quite often called our happy hormone. So it's what makes us feel good and it's less kind of based on that achieving of a goal like mm-hmm. the seeking system would be. So um, seeking is about finding information, learning to do things, mm-hmm. and that dopamine becomes that reward. Serotonin is kind of what makes us mm-hmm. happy, excited, our sort of day-to-day feel-good hormone yeah yeah yeah. like what you get after you've been for a walk or whatever you get that serotonin release and yeah and some dogs like find chewing quite kind of relaxing and helpful for doing that as well don't they yeah and that's it and it's just that um using the brain sort of moving from our um um can't remember what it's called <laughs> uh, moving from a more active um central system nervous central mm-hmm. system to our sort of rest and digest phase mm-hmm. where we're kind of calming things down and yeah. everything's slowing down and it's giving our body time to deal with that meal that we ate earlier or anything like that so yeah doing things like chewing is really nice for that and it does release a lot of those um hormones for the dogs as well in the same way that i eat a tub of Ben and Jerry's in the bath at the end of a long week. You Thanks know. for the visual, babe. Thanks. For the... <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, so, so it's just that, yeah, it's just kind of bringing that arousal down from whatever happened. No, that's cool. And thank you for that explanation because, again, it's terms that sometimes get sort of thrown around in the training world. Um, and I think it's just nice for people to have sort of an understanding of what's meant because even trainers do it sometimes like, we don't mean to, but when you're working with clients, sometimes you say things and you suddenly go, oh, do they understand what that means or not? And quite often people feel awkward to go, sorry, what does that mean? So I think it's nice for people to kind of 
be able to understand when we're kind of I call it geeking out a bit. Yeah. What and is I think by those I think that's a key point, isn't it? Because there are different parts of our role, whether you're a trainer or a behaviorist or you know, whatever you do, there's different parts of our role. So we need that background understanding. And it can be a very, very depth of knowledge, depending on what you're doing, like how much you need to know about neurochemistry or you know what's actually happening inside the dog. But we then have the other side of explaining it to other people, if that's clients or staff or other trainers you know whatever yeah. you're working on and i always think the um i've got a slide in one of my presentations about reactivity um because you know a lot of the time we're going to be using desensitization and counter conditioning and the actual definition for desensitization is something like um desensitization is a psycho uh something technique in which the distance at which a dog can cope is gradually decreased and it's this huge explanation and counter conditioning <laughs> yeah. has a similarly long explanation yeah. which is important for us to know we're, that's not what we're going to tell clients we're just going to no. say we're going to gradually get your dog used to something at a level they can cope with and change how they feel about it so yeah, you've yeah, got yeah. desensitization gradually getting the dog used to something at a level they cope with yeah and counter conditioning changing how they feel about it yeah they don't need to know that we're using operant counter-conditioning if we're teaching them a new behaviour or classical counter-conditioning if we're um, just feeding yeah. them when the other dog turns up. They just need to know we're gradually going to get your dog yeah. used to this thing and we're going to make them feel good about it. Yeah, yeah. So we've I got remember. to have that background information in mm -hmm. our own brains or in our books because you don't need yeah. to... Well, as I've just demonstrated, <laughs> I can't instantly draw all of these long things from my brain yeah, yeah, yeah. but I can read a sentence and go oh yeah that's right I remember that now so I, I need being, to be able to translate um, it to clients yeah I remember being at um, Clicker Expo a couple of years ago and I can't even remember who was speaking um Jesus and I'm not going to even attempt to pronounce his surname because I will butcher it but he was talking about respondent conditioning and I was sat there and my brain was going, huh, what, this? And it took a while. And I was like, oh, I do understand what he means. But it was classical. Tell me I'm getting this right, because otherwise I'm going to be like, oh. So I think it was classical conditioning, but he was referring to it as responding. Yeah. And my brain, just because of that one single word had been changed, Straight away, my brain went, oh, my God, you have no idea what he's talking about. You well, don't understand so, this. Why are you here? What's going on? Yeah, and that happens to all of us. And I've got a really good example for that. And I hope he doesn't mind me mentioning. He probably doesn't listen anyway, so it's fine. But um, I was sat at, um, what was it, East DBC, so Dog Bite Prevention Conference, yeah, as yeah. it was then. And I think it was Nando who was giving a talk. And I was sat next to... Uh, Daniel Mills from the University of Lincoln and some of the other people that work in the clinic team so like Professor Daniel Mills is arguably like one of the lead people in the field in the world mm -hmm. and um, Nando said I can't remember what he was talking about and then he was like DRI mm. and we were all just sat there like what's a, what's a DRI mm -hmm. but it's just a differential reinforcement of incompatible isn't it Whereas sometimes you can have DIO or MEB or, yeah. and we were all just a bit like, 
what? And then he said something else, and we were like, oh, he means a mutually exclusive behaviour. <laughs> so we have Why didn't he all just of this that? Yeah, okay. we have all of these terms, and, and part of it is that, like you said, there's lots of different schools, and, you know, they want to stand out a little bit, or they just have learned it themselves a different way, and yeah. some of the literature is different, and we're in a yeah. worldwide field, which means... Yeah. The Americans use terms that we don't use. And I did a talk on frustration at the Lemonade Conference last year. Which and, was very good. I oh, watched thank it, you. loved it. It was great. Um, and I just kept saying ragging. So the dog was lead ragging, and the dog was ragging <laughs> on the person's arm, and the dog was um, uh, yeah, <laughs> ragging a towel and thing. Yeah, and everybody, and I just didn't even think about it because, yeah. like, what else do you say? And then these questions came in like, nobody knows what you're talking about. What is ragging? And then I couldn't even think of a way of explaining it because, like you said, that's probably where it's come from, isn't it? Is we use rags to clean windows or work surfaces or yeah. whatever in the UK. That's what we do. So I was like, well, you, the dog's grabbed the lead and then he's ragging it. But then the ragging word is the word that you're having the issue with. So he's moving his head side to Are side. Biting. Yeah, so exactly. So a simple word like that. When you actually break it down into what does that mean and you get technical, it's gone from that one single term to a whole paragraph of description. Yeah, exactly. Desensitization. And that's part of the problem, isn't it? And there's some people who very strongly feel like we should operationalize everything. So everything should be broken down to that. Mm -hmm. very small thing so rather than saying the dog's lead dragging you'd say the dog has grabbed the lead in between his mouth and he's moving his head back and forth whilst holding the lead yeah which is super useful for some things because yep. if i've if an owner's just said to me on the phone the dog's ragging and i don't know what he means mm -hmm. then that's the definition that i would need yes. but if we're working in an environment with peers where we're using similar language just make things a bit quicker doesn't it yeah but it all comes back to those different skills that we need to have as trainers or uh, behavior consultants or whatever you, yeah it's a you wide do. field it's a very big ocean we do a lot of things but yeah it is it's an interesting one because it's i kind of understand why it happens and i do it myself but mm -hmm. equally it's a bit of a bugbear that we've got yeah. all of these different like if we think of that differential reinforcement like you said we've got yeah. differential reinforcement of other differential reinforcement of incompatible differential reinforcement of alternative mutually exclusive behavior yep. <laughs> is probably ones that i've missed yeah all they mean is teach the dog to do something different yeah don't that do situation. that do this instead do this exactly and it's the same as uh look at that training yeah back training uh, which is behavior adjustment, adjustment training yeah training or therapy or whatever yep. um and they are different they are different protocols and they are different skills. So it's useful to know both of them but... because, but they're both desensitization and counter conditioning because you're starting yes. at a distance that copes with, you're teaching them to do something else or you're feeding them yeah. uh, or you're using, um, you're not using food in bat necessarily, are you? But you're changing that emotional response. On the dog and the learner. Yeah. yeah. So you're gradually introducing that dog and you're changing that response, yeah. which is desensitization and counter conditioning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part of that is, you know, based on the fact that people are, are trying to be different, which is great. And we, you know, we should have an understanding of these different techniques. Yeah. But I think when you get down to the owner level, 
do they need to know if they're doing lat or bat or do they just need to know this is when you click the dog this is what you're rewarding this is what we want the outcome to be yeah so yeah, it's yeah. all like it just comes back again to the idea of we need a greater level of knowledge than the people that we're working with because yeah. that's how that's how it works you wouldn't yeah. expect a pupil in school to have the same level of knowledge as a teacher no and and it's you know infinitely um expanding isn't it and, and i the whole dunning kruger effect and well like, yeah exactly and you know i had a case last week um at one of my centers and the team spoke to me about it and i just went oh thank you because it's a lot of uh, it was a lot of complicated medical stuff potentially and lots of questions that we don't have answered so i just said mm-hmm. let's just get one of our vet behaviorists involved straight away because because uh, you know we need to also recognize that there are times where we do need somebody else just to help us out a bit to yeah. have that next step of knowledge and that's why the owners have come to you in the first place yeah and also like sometimes you know i think i'm glad you've mentioned vet behaviorists and we'll just talk about this really quickly before we finish up because there are times where medication can be really helpful when it comes to changing behavior i mean the the example that comes in the forefront of my mind is um, munchkin my staffy girl i spoke to you um last year when sort of pre-firework season because let's face it it's not one night anymore um i use celio gel with her you said we'll speak to your vet about this other um thing which um i did now, one of the side effects that he flagged up is potentially it could make her, um, it, the word aggressive wasn't used, but the basic layman's terms was it could shorten her fuse and make her more snippy yeah, living in a multi-dog household, which when we have a young male adolescent potentially irritating her, I decided that last year we'd moved house as well. So there were lots of triggers going on for her that she was stacked anyway trying a new medication it probably wasn't appropriate so we dealt with celio gel but this year i'm going to look at trying the other medication because a it's cheaper than the celio gel because that is very expensive um i think we went through eight tubes Tom's like, wow, and that's not covered on your insurance. Five dollar bills. Um, it is yeah, expensive. it's really good. Right, hubby pays her bill. Um, <laughs> it's his dog. It's fine. But cost is something that does have to be considered. But also, what's going to work for the dog? So, if we can maybe do a trial with her before fireworks start and see if that's going to suit her, brilliant. If not, we'll go back to the studio job. But some people like. When I spoke about it on my Facebook Live, like straight away, I had loads of people giving me loads of holistic approaches, which is super helpful and they can help. But Munch is at the stage, she needs chemical intervention to help. And I think that's something a lot of people I may be scared of, but also there is a bit of a stigma, isn't there, about using meds when it comes to training or behaviour modification would be more appropriate. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of different things that kind of feed into that. Mm -hmm. And 
the first one is there's still a huge stigma and taboo based around human uh, medical, you know, that sort of medication even being used in with humans, yeah. with people. Prozac, so, antidepressants. Yeah, and you know, you are, it either doesn't get talked about because the per, you know, the person doesn't want to or, or whatever, mm-hmm. which is totally fine. Mm-hmm. But it's also probably not talked about because we're not the best at mental health anyway, are we? And I, I grew <laughs> up in... Lockdown has proved that. Yeah, and I grew up in Wales, and we're even worse at it. <laughs> like, I, you know, I, I really struggle with it because it's not something that... But it is it's not something that's in the well. open. It is a regional thing. Like, I yeah, think definitely. Maybe more metropolitan areas, like big cities like London, are going to be more open... So talking about than someone that lives in the valleys. Yeah. And so that is a huge part is our previous experience anyway. Mm-hmm. And if you asked me, I would actually probably say that growing up, I didn't know anybody with mental health problems. Mm-hmm. But that's probably complete BS, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because we probably just weren't talking about it. Yeah, yeah. So there's that side of it. Yeah, and there was a really good study um, that I, I can't remember the name of off the top of my head. If you find the study, I can put it in the show notes. Yeah, I've got it saved, which yeah. looked at the type of people who use behaviour medication for their dogs. Mm-hmm. And a large percentage of people who have experience of that medication themselves, so they've either used it or a family member has, is on it or has used it in the past, they are like a huge amount more likely to use medication with their pets. Mm-hmm. okay so that's that's one side of it is this general understanding of how this sort of medication is used mm-hmm. in people anyway isn't really well talked about or understood yeah the other side of it is it's kind it can be seen as a last resort or a failure or you know oh you you're not a good enough behavior person or trainer or owner if, if you can't do this without medication which is complete bs again because there will be tons of different factors which lead us to whether medication is appropriate for that dog or not and again you know it's always going to be based on the vet at the end of the day it's the vet's responsibility i as a behaviorist i've got a fair level of knowledge with medications it's an area i find particularly interesting but i couldn't and wouldn't say to an owner this is the medication that you need mm-hmm. all i can do is say i think your dog could benefit from some extra help let's have a chat with the vet and i can have a chat with the vet and i can point them yeah. to resources and things like that because i have a special interest area that the vet doesn't get in general practice yeah. if it's a vet behaviorist i'll just be like hey can you have a look at this case for me yeah yeah and that's what we're super lucky at dogs just to have we've got a couple of behaviorists so i can say to dogs that i'm working with maybe we should talk about medication mm-hmm. then it all goes to them and they feed back into the conversation with me and, and that's how it works so there's quite a few different things that can lead to it in rescue one of the biggest things is the environment yeah. we can't change the environment mm-hmm. the dogs aren't in a home so they might be stressed more often which is impacting other things and that might mean that we would use medication for a dog in rescue sooner than we would in a home. Mm-hmm. But there's equally the situations in a home where a dog can really benefit from medication. Yeah. And I don't think it should be a last resort because yeah. if we have a way of improving welfare 
of first and foremost the pets mm -hmm. but also the owners yeah but we'll talk about that in a minute um why would we not take it why would yeah. we not explore it yeah yeah it's probably I mean, a better way to like with the celio gel so celio gel helps with um noise sensitivity munch is super reactive to fireworks and thunder um ironically though fine with gunshot like if there can be a shoot going on she doesn't care less but fireworks and thunder no um i joke she was originally from south london so there may be um some sort of previous understanding of gunshots somewhere along the line yeah but i wish i had used cdo gel and been more open to it years ago we've used it for three seasons now so three years of fireworks seasons i've used her. it's the difference between her sleeping her being able to exercise the day after her eating better and also not having her sitting there trembling and shaking which is heartbreaking you know yeah, i tried true. everything we tried thunder shirts i tried all the herbal remedies i could I tried dietary supplements. I tried serotonin diet. Like, you name it, I tried it. And the thing that helped was was the Celio gel. Yeah. And so if, if we look at it from the dog's point of view first, and then we'll come back to the owner side of it, because there's a couple of things that I just want to mention yeah, yeah. there. And so the dog side of it is there's two main classes. So we've got our short-acting medications that we'll use, like you said, um, for fireworks or thunderstorms or vet visits or um, unavoidable situations, which is only like a couple of hours or a couple of days. And then we've got some dogs who need that extra support longer term, and then they're going to use long, long term medications is the easiest way to break it down. Mm -hmm. But it's a lot of factors feed into to what we need but like i said we've got the option to remove or help that dog mm -hmm. why wouldn't we take it and it's not going to fix the problem yeah and one of the one of the risks with fireworks is it's a difficult one isn't it because they only i know they don't anymore but really they should only happen between yeah, yeah. november and december yeah. yeah so we've got a fireworks night and new year yeah in America, you've got 4th of July as well, yeah. which is a big one for fireworks. Yeah. But so we've got two things, mm -hmm. really specific points of time, quite close together. The rest of the year, we probably won't have many fireworks. Yeah. Hopefully, things crossed. Yeah, you get like the odd one or two. Yeah, exactly. It started happening, Um, so really interesting, just dive in, um, with the whole clapping for the NHS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We started doing fireworks. If Munch now hears clapping, she reacts the same as she would with yeah. fireworks. Yeah. We're, so there's, there's that. We're relatively lucky in most parts of the UK that we don't get a huge amount of really bad storms, really like hours and hours of thunder and lightning. You know, we get the odd day here and there, mainly in the summer, don't we, where it's yeah, predictable. And it's lighter your... out anyway, and, and there's a lot of different factors there. So... Medications is super useful for dogs who struggle in those situations. Mm -hmm. But what is the motivation for helping the dog behaviorally fix that problem? Because the rest of the time, the dog doesn't have that problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's one thing to consider. And I'm not saying 
that's right or wrong because there's there's lots of reasons to go into it and i would still prefer to get the dog to feel better in that situation Mm -hmm. but when we then transfer that onto the long-term medications this is where the owner side of it comes in Mm -hmm. because i said um, when we started talking about it it's about improving welfare for the dog Mm -hmm. and the owner but i don't mean that we should just give owners medications because they're not willing to do training or behavior yes definitely so and and i think that does become a problem with sound sensitivity side of things but i can kind of see it because it's hard to get owners to understand what they're working towards Mm -hmm. when fireworks and stuff isn't happening day to day Mm -hmm. so that's that's kind of a difficult topic because yes they should be doing training and behavior but is it really the end of the world yeah probably not you know when and when it becomes when we're talking about a phobia as well like i mean i say it's noise sensitivity as much but it is a phobia because if there are the start of every disney film there are fireworks nothing we can be watching a film and there can be a firework display on a film nothing it's with her, I don't think it's the noise. And with storms, especially, it's not just the noise of a storm. There's air pressure changes. Yeah. There's so much that goes on with storms. I think that's why a lot of dogs are, because as you say, that goes back to their natural instinct. If there is a storm, you should seek shelter to survive that storm. You know, um, why is she so bad with fireworks? I'm not fully sure. I have ideas of why she's so bad, but when you are talking about the long-term meds, if it's case the dog's being put on meds because the owner can't be asked to train, that's not a thing. Exactly. So that's my point as well is, and it will depend on the case, but most cases, unless you've got a dog who's really welfare compromised, most cases you're going to look at implementing some form of training and behavior modification Mm-hmm. If the dog, uh, sorry, if the owner is on board and you're getting good feedback and they're engaged and they're doing what you ask and we're not seeing improvement, that might be one thing that we then start to consider is yeah. does this, do we need to have a chat with the vet or refer to a vet behaviourist and see if, yeah. if that will help. But you're right, we don't want to just be doing it because people aren't engaged in the plan because yeah. it's, it's not going to make it better. Behaviour modification but sorry, behavior medication won't fix the problem. In most cases, it's not going to fix the problem. It's there as a crutch, as a help, whilst you're doing your behavior modification to get that successful change. I think one of the reasons, so another reason that it's got quite a bad stigma around it or why people struggle is we have a lot more medication options now We have a lot more that are licensed for veterinary use and we have more that we have good evidence for using off license, depending on, you know, the vet and and how happy they are with that and the situation. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about things like really sedating drugs like ACP that used to be given for fireworks that has no anxiolytic effect. People, so when we start to talk about medication, we start people start to think about sedatives or the dogs being zombies or he's um, a really good example because it stops the dog from having the physical reactions but the dog's brain is still mentally awake because mm-hmm. we used to use acp a lot with the horses when we had to do 
medical things or whatever, or even just so that you could handle some of them safely for procedures, you'd give them some ACP to knock them out a bit. Yeah, and it's a it's still a super useful drug, but it's a super useful drug for sedating animals for vets. So not even not- like when they go in, like when you're putting them out to do ops or whatever, it's still used there. Yeah. Some people some um some people and like i said you you need to speak to a vet or a vet behaviorist Mm -hmm. but some people will still use it for um situational anxiety as a as a label Mm -hmm. but they'd use it with you know you'd have to use it with something else to take the at the um the worry and the fear away or reduce it so it's because otherwise it almost acts a bit like rehypnol where (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> like you're just dosing them out and but they're still mentally aware well, yeah. and then what we see is that worsening of behavior yeah because actually you've just flooded them essentially because they can't do anything to make themselves feel better but their brain is still firing on all cylinders which yeah that, that's a whole that's a <laughs> whole can of worms let's not open um, one. but so I think that's the other side of the stigma is people think they're going to end up with a zombie dog or a dog who doesn't want to do anything because they're just sedated and that's not the case, but it's about getting the medication right for that individual, for the problem, for everything else, which is why it's super important if you're um, an owner to make sure you're working with an experienced behavior person. Mm-hmm. And if you're a trainer or a behaviorist, you're working with a vet behaviorist or somebody who can help you out. And you're always working with that referring vet because ultimately it's their decision it's their responsibility it's all kind of falls on them but we have this huge range of medications and they have different uses mm-hmm. and like you said um earlier like that's where sorry like we were talking about earlier that's where that different level of knowledge and understanding comes in because they work on brain chemicals so if you understand what the different brain chemicals do it's easier to understand yeah. how the different behavior medica- yeah. medications work mm-hmm. but again like i said the level that i need to understand that is different to how the vet behaviorists need to understand that yeah and very different to how the owner needs to understand it so yeah yeah 100% the owners don't need to understand it at all really yeah. you might get a really interested owner and the vet can have a conversation with them about what you're aiming to do. But mm. all they really need to understand is this is, this is, this, this this is the potential side effects in the first two weeks if you're using a long-term medication, or this is what you need to look out for. Yeah. This is what we're hoping to achieve. Mm-hmm. You still need to do your other stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But that's kind of what the owners need to know. And then depending on your interests and experience as you mm-hmm. move up that ladder is going to depend on how much you need to know so i find it all really interesting and i go quite into the neurochemistry and and why we're using those medications but like i said i'd never i would never go to a vet and say you need to use this yeah i might say these are some of the benefits that i've experienced in the past of working with these medications but if they're not comfortable with me saying that i'll just say well is yeah i'd like to discuss this do you have any thoughts would always be my first question anyway And then I can say, if you want any extra help, you know, I can put you in contact with a vet behaviorist to discuss it. And like I said, we're super lucky that I have that resource available to me anyway through my work. But there's lots of vet behaviorists like Sarah Heath and lots of other ones who will do remote consultations for vets. Yeah. So somebody is working directly with the dog. They've gone to the vet and said, I think we need a bit of extra help here. 
that general practice vet might not have any experience with behavior medif yeah. medications and particularly the ones off license mm -hmm. they can then speak to a specialist in that area yeah. to bring it all together and it's part of what i think we and it's a different topic really that we could go in probably spend a whole podcast on it's part of this holistic although that word's kind of been poisoned but this team yeah. approach yeah to working with dogs like we've talked so we talked about at the start if we've got medical things going on we're going to involve the vet straight away anyway if we've got pain or um, mobility issues we're going to be talking to physios or, or that sort of genre mm -hmm. of people we've then got the trainers who might be doing some of the work alongside behaviorists or behaviorists mm -hmm. working as trainers themselves as well uh, depending on you know what they do yeah. and then we might have other things like daycares if we're working with separation or uh you know pet sitters or dog walkers anyway if because if dog walkers are walking the dogs during the day they need to be following the plan as well yep so we've got this kind of team approach that we should all be taking to and every it case needs we see to be a team approach yeah and yeah. it should be a, it should be every dog or animal that we see in front of us we might not need every member of that team for every case we probably won't it's but nice to have the options yeah having those contacts being able to just ring somebody up and say can i get your opinion on this or can yeah, i refer yeah. this client to you or yeah. whatever that's going to give the best care for that owner and that dog that's sat in front of us yeah. and the other thing that we've talked about today is all of the things that annoy us <laughs> but that's all i actually care about am i providing the best care to that owner and to that dog yeah yeah, and the, the other stuff doesn't matter because it's it can be my opinion it can be my experience yeah it might feed into that but but it's not relevant if somebody if somebody came to me and said i've got this problem that i'd like to fix but we'd also like to do poopers i'd be like well i'll help you with this bit but i've got this really good colleague who i know really well and she's done hoopers with my dog and yeah. she's got flaming pink hair which is awesome <laughs> So I'll deal with this bit and I know Carrie will be happy for me to deal with this bit. Yep. But I'm gonna you you can then see Carrie Ann yep. once a week to do your hoopers. Yeah, and likewise, if I have a hoopers person come along and they go, Oh, but I've got a problem with this at home, I'd go, My mate Tom, who works yeah. at the Dogs Trust, is really good at this. And I think that this is where when trainers specialize in things if we can start helping each other out and working together it just makes dogs lives better definitely yeah and it makes our lives better yeah. because we don't want to be stressed because we don't know and we we know that imposter syndrome is a huge issue in our industry yep um, and compassion fatigue and compassion fatigue so yep. why why aren't we helping each other's out and again i'm in a fortunate position because i i don't do any private work so if people ring me up and, and you know it's a colleague, I wouldn't necessarily do it for an owner, but if a colleague rings me up and says, like, I've got this really tricky case, can I talk it through with you? Or have yeah. you got any ideas? I'm happy to have that conversation because yeah. it is it's time out of my day, but it doesn't constitute a financial loss because yeah. I wouldn't you would I wouldn't expect you to refer the client to me anyway, because I don't see private cases. Yeah. So I can see how it's trickier if um if it's your main income yeah i don't think you should be giving out tons of free advice to no, colleagues no, no. or clients. But... but it's about having that team effort so yeah. if i refer to a physio 
-hmm. if they get a behavior problem come in i'd expect them to refer back to me yeah, that's yeah, how these yeah, relationships exactly. work it's about building those relationships past having this kind of closed in i need to Mine. do I my business trainers and, have started resource guarding yeah 100%. <laughs> and it, it's a tricky one and like i said nobody should tell you how much time you give to others Mm -hmm. we should be kind to others but if it is your if it is your income that's your prerogative it doesn't bother me if you ring me but equally i've had other people say can i speak to you on the phone i'll pay you for your time and i've said Don't, doesn't bother me and yeah, they've yeah. donated it to a charity or something which i'm perfectly yeah. happy with that's so cool. you've got to think about how your expertise are relevant to other people and you should definitely put you know your own price on that because you've worked hard to get them but we should still be working as a team yeah. even if it is referring on to other people i'm not saying you should just ring a physio and be like hey i've got this dog can you give me some advice it's, because that might hey, not be the right dog thing. would you be able to look at it exactly can we work together on this case yeah 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 massively right tom thank you so so much for joining us before we started recording tom was like i oh, will only be talking for an hour and i'm yeah. looking at the time and i know we're well over that i know we it's are fine. um i would love <laughs> to have you back in the future because i think um there's definitely more for us to talk about and talking about the holistic side of training will be very interesting so let's well I, I was just thinking i don't know how well it would work but maybe a cool thing would actually be to have some different yeah people on and, and have it, a talk yeah. about how we can work as a team yeah no let's let's do that we'll definitely sort of saying out whether we do it on the podcast or on a facebook live or however yeah. we work it out i think that's a really good idea so tom um obviously you said you don't do private stuff but if people are looking for a new dog or looking to rescue dogs trust have centers all over the uk yeah yeah so everywhere so you can just go online and, and have a look uh dogstrust.org.uk cool um, and there's tons of there's tons of free advice and stuff on there as well so it's yeah good browse. resources and stuff like that cool so guys as always you can follow my dogs on instagram at minx chihuahua at dodge shepherd canine hoopers world is on all the social medias and until next time stay safe be kind wash your hands thoroughly keep your dogs on lead around livestock and don't let them lick toads take care guys bye For more information on Hoopers, where to find classes and Canine Hoopers World Instructor courses, find us on Facebook, like our page, join our free group, Canine Hoopers World. You can follow us on Instagram and we're also on Twitter at Canine Hoopers. Check out our website, www.caninehooperswild.com. Remember, Canine Hoopers World, everyone's invited.